Well, good morning. It is good to see you this morning on this beautiful Sunday morning. Yesterday I had the opportunity, we have had a, just a gorgeous weekend. Yesterday I had the opportunity to host or to co-host a uh, golf outing in northern, in northern uh, Indiana, the state that's below us. Whatever state that is. Uh, anyway, it was gorgeous there and uh, just a great opportunity. I had the opportunity to stand there for about four or five hours greeting people as they came through uh, hole number 10. That's the hole that I was manning there and uh, sitting next to watching the squirrels play back and forth in the trees and uh, the leaves beginning to fall and change colors. Absolutely gorgeous. I hope that you've had some opportunity this weekend to get out and enjoy God's creation uh, to see the hand of God. In this busy, fast-paced world, it is a beautiful thing for us to see God at work as we see the changing of the seasons, and I trust that you've had the opportunity to do so. As we turn our attention to 1 Thessalonians, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there as we will, Lord willing, finish up chapter 2 uh, today, and in the weeks to come, we are going to continue to work our way through 1 Thessalonians and uh, this great encouragement that we find here is we recognize, though, that we do face hindrances. I was reminded as I was preparing this message of a time many years ago where I was traveling uh, for the sake of biblical ministries worldwide, and I was traveling to Hong Kong, and we have some very dear friends, Lisa and I do, some very dear friends on the island of Mindanao in the Philippines. If you know anything about the island of Mindanao, this is where Martin and Gracia Burnham uh, were held hostage and where Martin would later perish and Gracia would be released as the Filipino army uh, would come into the Abu Sayyaf terrorist organization there and free Gracia. And so that, that's been many years ago. If you're not familiar with those events, you can look those up later. But that island has been uh, a significant area of God at work since that time. And Lisa and I have some very dear friends who live in Davao City. And they had been taking some of the training that I was doing at the church where I was pastoring at the time, and they were uh, piping it via YouTube over to uh, Mindanao, and they were uh, teaching and training pastors who were coming from the tribal areas, the very areas where Martin and Gracia had been marched through, held captive. Now pastors were coming out of those communities and learning systematic theology that I was teaching in Chicago that they were learning in Davao City. And so it was our great desire to meet with them and see what the Lord was doing. And I, I was already flying to Hong Kong. And so I thought, well, what, what a great thing it would be if I could stop on my way there or on my way back and somehow be with them for a short period of time. And have you ever had one of those frustrating situations where everything that you do to get there is just met with a wall? I pushed on this way. Thought I had the right plane tickets? Nope, that wasn't going to work. Had to change that. So I pushed this way, thought I had the right plane tickets, wasn't going to work. Pushed this way, nope, that wasn't going to work. And everything that I did through faithful, constant prayer, the door was there. I could not go through it. It was shut. Have you ever had one of those frustrating moments where everything was just a hindrance? As it turned out in this situation, the day that I would have landed on my final set of tickets was the day that the island of Mindanao would go under uh, the complete and total lockdown. And if I had flown in, I would have flown in about two hours before martial law was declared. And I would have been stuck in Davao City for six weeks. 
before President Duarte lifted that. Isn't it interesting how the Lord uses even the hindrances that we see as hindrances for his glory? Paul is experiencing those hindrances. His desire is to be in Thessalonica, to be among the believers there. But every plane ticket he's booked has been leading to further hindrances. That's where we find him in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. And that's where we begin this morning. Notice what the scripture says as we begin here together. The scripture says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for the privilege that we have of bowing our heads before you as we turn again to this very important book. Lord, we praise you that as we have just sung a moment ago, our hope rests in Christ alone. We don't hope in the next plans or events. We don't pray that our next details will be those that come through because if all else fails, then that is the end. Instead, we are those who pray and hope and express great joy in knowing that indeed Christ will finish what he started. We look forward with great joy to the coming of Christ to take us unto himself. And that is our motivation, it is our yearning, it is our drive. It is why we do what we do. But there is a danger, and we recognize it this morning. There is a danger that, especially in our Western world, that we would have this idea, this wrong concept that we are self-autonomous. That we as believers have the rights to make decisions for ourselves and that we demand the right to make more than one decision. We want options. Lord, I pray that we would step back from our arrogant self-autonomy and recognize that you are at work, that our eyes would be lifted from our circumstances and look to the future when Christ returns. Lord, I praise you that that is what Paul does. He is not distraught or discouraged. He's not frustrated or aggravated as we so often are. Instead, he looks to the end. And he looks longingly towards the time where he's reunited with the Thessalonian believers. If it is not on this planet, in this life, it would be in the next. So Lord, I pray that we'd have the same mind as Paul in that relationship, in that regard that you would give us understanding hearts, that the words that are spoken would be from your spirit to our hearts, that your name would be glorified as your word is spoken this morning. And so, Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for this. We ask that we be open hearers, willing to listen, willing to obey, that your name would be glorified in all that we say and do this morning. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we begin, we notice first Paul's separation, and it seems odd to us, perhaps, as we pull verse 17 out, but remember we've been working our way through chapter 2, and Paul through chapter 2 has been praising God, especially here at the last part, for the endurance of the Thessalonian believers, faithful and true hearers who are not just hearers only but doers. Paul has celebrated that truth in the Thessalonian believers, that's where we studied last week. But now Paul begins to identify his separation, and he calls it really an involuntary removal. Why is Paul not in Thessalonica? Because he was drug out of Thessalonica. 
He didn't voluntarily leave. He was moved out of Thessalonica. Notice again in verse 17, as we begin to notice Paul's concern, he says, but since, you, since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. What Paul is reminding the Thessalonians is that he is not among them because he was removed from them. But that doesn't stop Paul from an aching desire to do ministry in Thessalonica. Sometimes absence from someone can cause us to believe that there is a coolness that has developed. But Paul is not doing that. Just because he is not in Thessalonica does not mean that he's not concerned about the Thessalonian believers. We recognize his concern in going back to verse 14. He's seen an increase of persecution, the same kind of persecution that has been felt in Jerusalem and Judea. He senses that persecution has come to Thessalonica, and these believers are now paying a dear price for knowing Christ as Savior. Because they're paying a dear price, Paul is concerned for their welfare, for their growth in Christ, for their maturity in Christ, and for their obedience to the things of Christ. That concern motivates Paul's emotions. He's emotional over the hindrances that have prevented him from going to Thessalonica. I imagine that there are tears shed at this moment. If you recall, back to Acts chapter 17, Paul was removed from Thessalonica against his will. Now, it wasn't literally by being drug into the center and beaten and then cast out as he was in Philippi. Instead, it was Jason was hauled before the city, and Jason and his household were fined for hosting Paul and Silas, and therefore, Paul and Silas are snuck out of the city, and they leave against their will because of the persecution that they, their presence, was bringing to the Thessalonian church. The time that Paul is writing, though, Paul's in Corinth far to the south of Thessalonica. He is likely alone at this point. We know that he sent Timothy off to Thessalonica to get a report back, and maybe Timothy has returned with that and is still with Paul, but then again, Paul is continuing to send Timothy out, so it's likely that Timothy isn't there. Silas probably isn't there either at this point. He's waiting for Silas. As Paul is in Corinth, this sinful city, this kind of Las Vegas of the ancient world, Paul has the Thessalonians on his mind. The word torn away is a very, very strong term. In fact, Paul uses very strong terms this entire text that is before us today. These are not light texts. Well, we were, we were torn away, as we may say. Yeah, we didn't want to leave, but we left. We were torn away. We may say it in a passive way as that. Paul's not using it in a passive way. He says, I was torn apart from you. And this is an unnatural tearing apart. In fact, it is with emotional deprivation that takes place. And it's the same word that we get our word orphan from. Does that tell you the intensity? A child being ripped away from their parents is where we get our word orphan is the same word that Paul uses here. He says, I was orphaned from you. I was ripped apart from you, not by my own desire, not because it satisfied my emotional ambitions, but it caused emotional deprivation. 
And Paul adds stronger emphasis so that we might say that Paul, rather than just the being torn away, he adds extra to it and says that he was not only torn away, but he was kidnapped away. If we could in some way understand what Paul is saying, the intensity of what he is saying is I was pulled away, I was ripped away, I was literally hauled away, kidnapped from you. This was clearly a distressing event for Paul and one that Paul would never get over in the earthly life. It would have been for the believers in Thessalonica as well. One day they're worshiping together. The next day, Jason is hauled out into the city square and he is fined for hosting Paul and Silas, for hosting the early church, likely. The believers there in Thessalonica suddenly have Paul with them and suddenly Paul is removed from them. What do they do now? They've turned to Christ. In the shadows of Mount Olympus, in the land of paganism, what are they to do now? I remember when I was a college student, and it's this time of the year where you have all the college events going on, and uh, students are settling into a new semester. As they began that new semester, I remember distinctly when my parents hauled me, uh, and I use that term on purpose, uh, they hauled me from Colorado to Kansas City where I went to school at Calvary and at Calvary I remember the day I was sitting in at the time Calvary only had old barracks for their dorms and they looked uh, hulking ugly and early uh, or late August extremely hot no air conditioning in those buildings and I came from western Colorado 9,500 feet in elevation building cabins all summer to 700 feet muggy, hot Kansas City. I remember sitting in my room as my parents pulled away. They had dropped all my stuff off in my room and I sat there thinking, what in the world have I just done? (laughs) That emotion compounded upon many times the Thessalonians felt And Paul felt as he was ripped apart from them. Paul points out that this separation was not only physical and not only emotional, but especially it was still present. The believers were still on his heart. And Paul expresses for them a deep concern. Events outside of Paul's control had forced Paul to be separated from them in person, but his concern was still active. He says, not only, it's not, it's not only physical separation, but it's a deep separation. It's an emotional separation, but that does not mean that I have abandoned you, Thessalonians. It doesn't mean that I have forgotten you, Thessalonians. I am pouring into you, Thessalonians, and I still have a deep concern because of these events that were outside of my control. Paul sought to return to this church, but he had been prevented in doing so time and time again. And so Paul begins to define for them how many times he had been denied the opportunity. And he goes into it three different ways, probably accounting for multiple efforts that Paul had reached out to trying to get back to Thessalonica. Paul refers to these obstacles that made it humanly impossible And he does so, notice, as he says this again in verse 17, in the middle of verse 17, he says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, 
Three different ways that Paul says, we tried, I tried, we tried to get to Thessalonica. Paul sought to return to this church, but he was unable to do so. We may get the impression that Paul had, by other readings, especially as you read some of the lists that you may get in the book of Romans, or as you see him confronting sin in the church at Corinth, or you see him confronting uh, the false teachers and uh, the books, the pastoral epistles, we may get this idea that Paul was an icy personality, that he was a hard and fast legalist, if you were to just read it as black and white words on a page. And we recognize that Paul certainly was one who called for and practiced a personal holiness, and it is essential that Paul would practice holiness. By the way, those who preach and teach the Word of God, who view anything less than personal holiness, they wind up being frauds. And Paul is one who's pushing for holiness. He's pushing towards a, a recognition of Christ's likeness, an attitude of Christ's likeness and purity. And so we may view that desire, that ambition for holiness and the call to others' holiness and the call for others' purity as that which is remote and impersonal, but instead it is that which invites believers in to enjoy the relationship that you were created for. Not that, is, that which is pseudo, that is fake, but the real relationship that believers have when they walk humbly and dependently upon our great God. That's what Paul was calling them into. And so when we see Paul in this moment, we recognize that Paul is not being icy. Notice the intensity of the emotions. Paul, as we've worked our way through chapter 2, has referred to his relationship and his concern and his care and his ministry for the Thessalonians in familial terms. It says, we were nurturing as a mother. We were instructive as a father. We were patient as a brother, living with each other, encouraging each other, strengthening each other as a brother in Christ. Paul is displaying care and emotion and is reminding the believers of his great desire to be among them and what a faithful example of a pastor Paul is to the Thessalonian believers. But he says that he's been hindered and it's because of Satan's schemes. Notice as we move into 18, the second portion of 18, he says, they tried, they tried, they tried, but Satan hindered us. Satan is the one who provided obstacles in the path. The intensity of Paul's efforts was demonstrated by the opposition, the one who opposed Paul to go there. Satan had strongly opposed Paul's efforts to return to the believers in Thessalonica because there was an effective ministry there. The word for hindered that Paul uses is another strong term following other strong terms. The word for hindered is a military term that is used to describe the efforts of one army to block or to destroy or tear up a road that, ca that causes it to be impassable to another army. In a recent article in the Wall Street Journal, they reported on the slow progress that Ukrainian troops were making in southern Ukraine as they're trying to take back land from the Russian military. The military leaders on the ground spoke of the obstacles that Russia had placed in the path to slow the progress of the tanks, including landmines and what they call dragon's teeth. Dragon's teeth were used, in fact, 
on this date in 1944, actually tomorrow, 1944, a battle would begin for the city of Aachen, Germany. The dragon's teeth were deployed against the Allied troops in a battle that lasted from October 2nd to October 22nd as part of a defensive line protecting West Germany from the Allied invasion. These dragon's teeth created the opportunity for the first battle on German soil, and here is an up-close picture of them. Those are designed, there's rows of them, five to ten deep, and five to ten rows of them with killing fields between each row of dragon's teeth. And so the idea was that once the tanks got over the first row of dragon's teeth, here's a further out picture You see the whole row that's formed there, and that line formed the Siegfried line that protected West Germany. Here in the battle for Aachen, the intensity of the battle was such that when the tanks would go over the first line of dragon's teeth, they would be trapped in a hundred-yard killing field before the next row of dragon's teeth, and then another row of dragon's teeth, and then yet another row of dragon's teeth. The U.S. forces were ordered to pierce through the line and bypass the city of Aachen, Germany, not fighting in the city of Aachen. That's where Charlemagne is from. And so not fighting there, but instead bypassing the city of Aachen. However, these obstacles, and you can see from their presence, those after all of these years are about six feet tall, the tallest ones there, after all these years still, those formed the obstacles that would force the soldiers into urban fighting. At this battle, despite the obstacles, at least one soldier would come to Christ, and shortly afterward, he would be wounded in the battle to take out these dragon's teeth. From an earthly perspective, we would say, wow, what a devastating series of events. But after being wounded to take out the dragon's teeth, He would be sent home, and I praise the Lord he was, because I married his pretty granddaughter years later. So Lisa and I would return to the battlefield where her grandfather was wounded to see the obstacles that would enable us, years later, uh, to meet together. These were frustrating days for the Allied forces, as this was the first battle on German soil, and so the Germans went from Uh, by their definition, from being Nazis to German soldiers and fighting for their homeland. So this was a devastating battle for the Americans. As we recognize the obstacles, we recognize that despite Satan's opposition, despite his work, that uh, Paul continued to endeavor to serve the Lord faithfully. And there's some great truth for us as we continue in our study, recognizing Satan's obstacles are in the way of Paul. Paul is saying, the road has been filled with dragon's teeth. I can't pass through it. I can't get back to Thessalonica, but that does not mean that I'm not engaged in a spiritual battle. Paul was engaged on a spiritual battlefield, and you and I are as well. And it's very important for you and I to understand how Paul wages this war in the spiritual battlefield. The spiritual battle that Paul describes allows us to confront the subject that we typically either underemphasize or overemphasize. You and I as believers, those of us who know Christ as Savior, are often quick to say, well, 
Uh, Satan has stood in my way. I'm not able to go there. And we blame every detail, even our personal sin on Satan. And everything is Satan's fault. Well, yeah, I lied, but that was Satan's fault. Uh, you don't need Satan's help to do that. Have you noticed that? You don't need Satan's help to act like a sinful creature. You are a sinful creature. That doesn't give us an excuse, and we certainly must not use Satan as the excuse. And so, therefore, we either underemphasize or we overemphasize. We overemphasize in saying, well, Satan made me do it. That was the same excuse, by the way, that goes all the way back to Adam, the very first sin. What was Adam's excuse? The woman made me do it. What was Eve's excuse? The serpent made me do it. We still use that excuse today, and it holds just as much water today as it did then with the Lord. However, it's also possible that we underemphasize Satan's involvement, especially in a Western world where we believe ourselves to be self-autonomous individuals. We underemphasize Satan's involvement in our world today. And we don't see him as active and as present and as opposing the church. <clears throat> but honestly, we see more of Satan's influence in the church today than we've seen in modern history in the American church. We see Satan's influence in the battles that rage between believers and causing disunity. We see the battles that rage in causing a sinful actions and a watering down of the word of God. And we're going to see those in a moment as Paul illustrates them for us. I wanted to capture them for us. And we're going to look at them in just a moment. But we must be those who do not underemphasize or overemphasize Satan's involvement. You and I as believers in Jesus Christ were told to put on the full armor of God so that we may stand against the schemes of the evil one. Therefore, we know we are on a battlefield. So let us not be surprised when we encounter dragon's teeth in the road. A quick survey of Satan's activities in the early church will help us better understand the battles that we face. We don't have time this morning to look at all of these. We've got much more to learn here as we move through the text, but write each of these down and notice them. First, Satan attempts to accomplish his ends through four basic strategies. First, by twisting and distorting the truth of God's word. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Satan will seek to twist and distort the truth of God's word, and he will do it through preachers who fill pulpits. And he will do it through podcasters, and he will do it through music, and he will do it through all sorts of means and efforts. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. He will also do it by tarnishing the testimony of God's people. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Satan will work diligently to tarnish those who are faithful followers of Christ. Is that not what he did to Paul in Thessalonica? He used the Jewish uprising to taint and tarnish the name of Paul or seeking to tarnish the name of Paul. That's why, by the way, pastors must pursue holiness. Teachers of the word of God must pursue holiness, and so must all of us pursue holiness because Satan is seeking to tarnish your testimony in your workplace. If he can get you to behave in an ungodly, earthly 
worldly way, then he's won. If you start gossiping, backbiting, or uh, speaking ill of somebody else, slandering, or using coarse language, Satan has already tarnished your testimony. He doesn't have to do much more than that. So he seeks to tarnish the testimony of God's people. He also, and this one is one we will go back and look at, he trashes a believer's zeal to accomplish God's work. He trashes the believer's zeal. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and it's fascinating to me, the description description that we have here, beginning in verse 7. Verse 7 says this of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being, becoming conceited. So here you have God allowing Satan to put a thorn in the flesh of Paul, and God is going to use it for God's purposes, that is to humble Paul, but it was Satan who was harassing Paul, who was seeking to destroy the zeal of Paul for God's work. And believer, Satan's still doing that. He wants to destroy your zeal, and if he can do it through non-essential elements where you begin to tarnish your testimony, then all the better. And then finally, the last one, he seeks to do so. Satan seeks to accomplish his means by thinning down the effectiveness of God's church, Luke 22, 3-6. By thinning down the effectiveness of God's church, Luke 22, Three through six. Satan is engaging in spiritual warfare, and you and I are on the front line of that battle. It is fascinating. I'm reading a book on the Mossad of Israel, and it is fascinating how many times the battle lines against Israel changed and morphed, and they would just get good at one thing, and they would be very, very good at stopping certain attacks against Israelis and Israelites, and, and then pretty soon it would bubble up over here and they never saw it coming. Satan does the same kind of thing in the spiritual warfare that you are engaged with. You and I may be very good at not allowing Satan to twist or distort the truth of the Word of God among us, but then over here he's tarnishing our testimonies. And so we begin to focus over here and, and we allow him then to trash our zeal because we are looking to externals to prop up our zeal. Paul does not look to externals to prop up his zeal. From the beginning, Satan had hoped to pull human beings away from the work of God, and that is clear in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, which we made reference to a moment ago. Now with these in Thessalonica, turning from idols to the gospel, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, it's no wonder that Satan sought to hinder Paul's ministry. And you better believe that when the church is effective for the glory of God and effective for accomplishing the purposes of God, Satan will stand opposed. But it also is saddening to think back to a few sentences here in the text, in the context and draw the inevitable and evident conclusion that the Judeans, who had opposed Paul, had opposed the church at Thessalonica, those that Paul spoke about in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2, are actively participating in a satanic work. They're the ones who are aiding and assisting in the hindrances that Satan has put forward. 
Beloved, let us not be like those Judeans who actively are doing Satan's work. So there are some lessons for Paul and lessons that we should be drawing out of this because if we were to leave it off here, how depressing this is. You're engaged in a battle. Satan, in all of his work, has set up dragon's teeth in your path. You can't go through. You want to go a certain direction. Satan does not allow you to go through that direction. And God has allowed the dragon's teeth to remain. So what happens to the believer? Well, as we recognize Satan's schemes, we recognize some vital lessons that are learned by Paul. And one of those vital lessons is that we are to move forward with anticipation. We actually sang it this morning. We sang it in the last song before the message. We sang of looking ahead with anticipation, forward with anticipation. The hindrances that Satan had used to distract and to disrupt the work of God caused Paul to look up. Notice verses 19 and 20. It says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. This is an interesting phrase, but I want us to walk through it and understand what Paul is instructing by his own example. The hindrances that Satan has used causes Paul to say, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord? What is it that motivates our joy? What is it that motivates our hope? For me, I was extremely disappointed when I could not get to Davao City. For months, I was frustrated that the plans wouldn't come together. But I was overjoyed when instead of boarding a flight to Davao City, I boarded a flight to the United States and discovered that if I had been on that flight to Davao City, I'd be there for a long time. You see, we think myopically. We think singular. We think, unfortunately, in self-autonomous views. For the believer, Paul does not get discouraged or frustrated or aggravated. He's emotional. He has great desire to see the Thessalonians, but Paul doesn't dwell there. For the believer, we kind of think the opposite of that. We don't talk enough about heaven. And when thinking of heaven, we may be tempted to think, well, it'll be good when we get there. And we may not say it that way, but that's kind of how we really think about it. However, in that kind of thinking, notice Paul's direction. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? His eyes are set on the return of Christ. He's not saying, well, that'll be good. It'll be good to leave this sin-stained world. He is saying that is glory beyond glory. That is so wonderful. I cannot understand it. And it explodes my comprehension. It is not just good. It is beyond my imagination. It is captivating. And it has captivated my anticipation. And it should alter how we view living today. When we are confronting dragon's teeth today, do you look at the dragon's teeth or do you look up? Do you look at the obstacles that are in front of you? 
or do you look up? Do you see only the hindrances? Because if you see only the hindrances, I guarantee I know how you think. I guarantee I know what the next thoughts are. You're frustrated at the hindrances. You're aggravated by those who have helped, in your mind, accomplish those hindrances. I want to do this, and now I can't do this. I want to go this direction, but I can't go that direction. And so we become frustrated, and we become aggravated, and frustration and aggravation lead to anger, discouragement, depression, and a continued cycle over and over and over again. That's not how the believer is to respond to hindrances. How do you respond to hindrances? You want to go a certain direction. Satan may have tore up the road before you. The Lord may be saying, no, that's not the direction I want you to go. So it may not even be Satan's schemes that have caused that. What is your answer? What is your response to hindrances? Paul's was to look forward with anticipation, looking for the coming of Christ. And he did so with an undeterred joy, an undeterred joy. Notice again here in verse 19, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you, for you are our glory and joy? Paul does this in a fascinating way, and we should not miss it. Paul, in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution for the Thessalonians, he's hearing news of the persecution. He has a joyful hope that is undiminished by all of the seemingly insurmountable, immovable problems. From a human perspective, there's nothing that Paul can do to push through the dragon's teeth. He scanned the distant horizon. And as he's looking at the distant horizon, he sees Christ return, and he sees his dear friends from Thessalonica in the intimate presence of their Lord in heaven. One writer says of this, this is a sudden burst of energy. Paul breaks out in hallelujahs over the Thessalonians to demonstrate the ultimate in commitments and love. Paul asks one question in three parts. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. Is it not you? And then indeed he gives the answer that we've all been waiting for when he affirms, indeed you are our glory and joy. As intense as they were, the present trials had not stolen Paul's joy, nor his recognition of what God was doing despite the hindrances. They had not caused Paul to sacrifice his holiness at the altar of complaint. They had caused Paul to look up and see what truly brought joy. Beloved, you may be pursuing all kinds of things to pursue joy. It may be in sports. It may be on uh, some sort of field level where you are advancing in your field of work. It may be in recreation where you have toys and extra houses and boats and all kinds of 
snowmobiles and all kinds of things to have fun, whatever that may be. You could seek joy in those things. They're not necessarily bad. I'm not saying that. There's a place for them in the life of the believer. But is that where your joy comes from? Test it. The next time the snowmobile won't start, where's your joy come from? The next time you push start on the boat motor and it doesn't fire up. The next time you walk into that extra house and you see uh, a raccoon has gotten in there. Where's your joy come from? As intense as they were, the present trials that Paul faced had not stolen his joy because his joy was found in those that were going to spend eternity with him. You can't take the boat to heaven. You can't take the snowmobiles to heaven. You can't take your job to heaven. But you can take others with you. Paul's joy was that one day when he stood face to face with his Savior, the believers who surrounded that moment would be evidence of the rewards that Christ would give to his servant, Paul. Because Paul was instrumental in the salvation of those in Thessalonica. Paul understood that his source of joy was reaching others for the sake of Christ. And whatever it took, no matter what obstacles were in the way, Paul's joy was the joy of the salvation of others. Do you view others in the same way? Is your joy, maybe you've not had the opportunity. You say, well, pastor, I'm not an evangelist. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Every believer is called to do the work of sharing Christ. Every single one of us to share the gospel. You may not be an evangelist. You may not be one who can easily strike up conversations, but have you led someone to Christ? You don't have to be a great conversationalist. You don't have to be an evangelist. You have to be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have to be obedient to Christ who says that it is our responsibility to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. We are to teach, we are to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to proclaim Christ and him crucified, risen, and coming again. That's what Paul looked for. And there is surety in that. There is surety because of all of the work that Christ had done. Paul did not have to go one by one and say, well, I hope you make it, Thessalonians, when you face intense persecution. I hope that you're going to achieve there. Paul knew because of the work of Christ, and because he had hope in God's work. Paul's hope was in God's work. Focused on the second coming of Christ, Paul's hope is specifically focused on God's unique work in their life. Paul had opened the door by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was the Spirit's job anyway. The Spirit was opening the door. Paul was just the vessel that would be the mouthpiece. He and others had paid a dear price personally, for their spiritual progress. And he had high hopes that one day salvation's work would be completed. By the way, that hope, as we get from Hebrews 
reminds us it's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the assurance that this is going to take place. We're looking forward, longing for that moment. That's what Paul longed for. He, was, he knew it was going to happen. He just wished it would happen right now. He wanted to see it right then. Paul and his companions were distinctly different from most religious leaders of his day. He was primarily focused on them, not himself, not, not the other teachers, but he was primarily focused on the Thessalonian believers, not himself. He was not self-autonomous. He wasn't concerned about himself. He measured his ministry, the second one, he measured his ministry by the spiritual or eternal blessings received by those to whom he had ministered to, not the earthly and temporal. Paul wasn't concerned about comfort for the believers. At least he didn't see it in the eternal perspective. Your temporary comfort wasn't Paul's primary concern. Your temporary agreements was not Paul's permanent and eternal concern. The eternal condition of your soul was Paul's concern. Paul invested there. Furthermore, Paul celebrated the power of the gospel to redeem sinners. And so when Paul says that his hope and his joy and the crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming was the Thessalonians, what he was saying is God has done a great work and I can't wait to see God finish that work. Is that your hope and joy? Are you so invested in the things of God that you see these things happening? Or are you so divested from the things of God that when dragon's teeth come before you, you're distraught, disillusioned, discouraged, and deconstructing? You know, believer, as we see Paul in this passage, we should be those who are reminded of the great joy of seeing Christ face to face. Every chapter through the book of 1 Thessalonians ends with the return of Christ, or at least has it in it. Maybe it doesn't end, but it has the return of Christ in it. That is because the Thessalonians, in the midst of serious trials and difficulties, had to have their eyes raised. Believer, will you allow Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, to raise your eyes this morning? I check the news before I come to the pulpit every Sunday morning just to see if there was something significant that's happened that I need to address from the pulpit. I tell you what, that's a difficult habit because it's challenging. I look at four or five news outlets and none of them are those that you may automatically think. I try to avoid the big name ones. And I try to look at the, the ones that are... Uh, a commentary on American living. And I'm discouraged. I'm frustrated if my eyes are focused only on those things. If I look only to the election, to the UAW strike, or to any of the other items, the war in Ukraine, the other wars that have started up in the midst of the war in Ukraine, if I'm only focused on these things, I'm discouraged, frustrated, zapped of joy. Paul 
urges us to look up. Do you long for the return of Christ? If you long for the return of Christ, then it will be your endeavoring effort to be obedient to Christ. And when Christ says that you are to make disciples, you will have as your foremost responsibility and obligation to share the gospel in some way with someone that you meet. Paul says that the Thessalonians were the crown. Without getting into the theological aspects of all that will take place, Paul does that in the book of his letter rather to the Corinthians. But those crowns are not for Paul's glory. Those crowns are for the glory of our Savior. Those crowns will be used to be handed back to our Savior. That was Paul's motivation, that God would be glorified. That his attention and his focus would be on the majesty and the excellence and the wonder, the awesome wonder of eternity. Do you live that way? Finally, I once heard it said, and it's a euphemism that you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Believer, that is not ever true. You cannot be too heavenly minded. You can be lost in space, but you cannot be too heavenly minded. May it be your endeavoring effort today to be so heavenly minded that you are of incredible earthly good to those around you as you demonstrate Christ to them. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for Paul's example because it would be like us to be stuck in Corinth alone in our room writing a letter begrudgingly. Writing a letter to those that we had been removed from and demonstrate a self-autonomous view. Telling them how much we had sacrificed for them. How much time, energy, and effort had gone into ministry there. Telling them of all of the hardships that we had endured there. Telling them of all the plans and the purposes that we had sought to do and that we had been hindered from. But I praise you that Paul, while expressing the hindrances, does not leave us at the hindrances, does not say that he's engaged in a spiritual battle, period, but reminds us that the battle that he's engaged with and in is that which causes him to raise his eyes to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's caused him to raise his head above the fray and to see the hope and the joy of the return of Christ. Lord, we long for that day. We pray that it is today. But we also pray that if it is not today, that we would have the urgency as if it were. That we would have the recognition that every conversation that we have can be turned to gospel things. We know it's not our job to save everyone. It's not our job to save anyone. It's our job to be the proclaimers. So cause us to be the faithful proclaimers. That our eyes would be attuned to eternity. 
that the wonder and the awe would be that which captivates our hearts and our imaginations for your glory and for our good. Lord, I pray that that would be demonstrated immediately in our obedience to you, and that that would begin right now as we rise and sing praises before you again in our acts of worship. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.